Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we have Tyler Hanna, a student at North Central University. And we are going to be talking about his article and an article that was in reply to his by a Miss writer. So Tyler, can you tell us a little about yourself, your theological background? So I'm currently 26 and I am studying, I'm a double major at North Central University where I study marketing and entrepreneurship and I have three minors, uh, business administration, pre-law and Christian studies. So I really, really, really love education if you couldn't tell. My theological background, I am Pentecostal. I am a part of a network of churches throughout the United States and Canada called the FCA, which stands for the Fellowship of Christian Assemblies, not athletes, which many people get those two confused. Let's see, I did not grow up in the church. I came to know Christ about six years ago in November of 2011. It's it's kind of a, a blessing and a curse because I... Obviously, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, didn't grow up going to youth group. I don't know what that's like, but I also don't have as much theological baggage as I see some of my peers here at the Christian University do. Absolutely. And that baggage could uh, weigh people down. I kind of grew up in an open theist background where I wasn't a very popular kid. And so I just grew up my entire life, people attacking me. A little bit similar. I didn't grow up with a support structure, maybe. All right, so you recently wrote an article for your paper. I, I used to write for the newspaper, and they would give me like uh, 300 to 350 words. And then anyone writing against me, it always seems that they'd give them double the space, right? Like right. 700 words. That's almost what it looks like went on with your article, whereas the response article to yours gets about twice as much words. Was that I did notice that too. Like as I was rereading my article and Kristen's article today, yeah, I noticed that mine was significantly smaller than hers. But that's okay. Did they that's put okay. Did they put any limits on that, or was that just the way it turned out? I had a six hundred word limit, mm-hmm. I believe, and I don't know exactly the word limit that Kristen faced. I do know, though, my article was published solely online, and and then Kristen's was published in the actual paper. And so I said that perhaps that difference accounted for um, the difference in length. Yeah, hers is uh, 1,000 words, and yours is 600. So that's interesting. Uh, But your article is about open theism. You basically expose people to idea of the future in which the future is not closed in any fatalistic sense. And then you talk about a little bit of the biblical evidence. Would you like to bring us over a brief overview of that article? I I attack this issue from more of a standpoint, and then I bring some scripture into the argument with me. But my biggest conflict with the Calvinistic and the Arminianistic view of the God's foreknowledge is that in one sense, God determines everything to happen. He wills everything to happen. And then in the Arminianist view, God simply knows everything that will happen because that's just a characteristic of his omniscience. And I believe that both positions ultimately place God at fault for the problem of evil in the world, theodicy. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, because either God is guilty because he wills it to happen or he's guilty simply by association. Okay. So if you read Kristen Ryder's article, it's almost like she's responding to that specifically and not the article that you did write. So she talks about all these issues, your views that you didn't actually write in your article. So you kind of kind of see that you guys have had some conversations that are not part of this dialogue. Yeah, Kristen and I, yes, we have we've probably talked more about this in person than we have written about it. But yeah, I use an example in found in Exodus where Moses is talking with God and Moses is concerned that the elders, the Israelite elders are not going to go and listen to him because yeah, God is trying to influence Moses to persuade the Israelite elders to lead them out of Egypt. And Moses is concerned that they won't listen to him. Uh, there's a nuance of possibility in that passage of Scripture. Now, if if God was a determining God, if the deterministic motif of Scripture is all that there was, then you would hear God say something like, well, Moses... Um, there will be, you'll go to the Israelite elders and then you show them three signs and then, and then they will believe you. And then you can lead them out of Egypt. Seems a lot more comforting actually to me, but that's not what God says. God says, you know, if, if they listen to you and God begins to hint at the possibility of all these possibilities. Uh, and so that's kind of the the crux of my my article. Right. The the Bible is definitely written with this in mind in which God has possibilities and he talks to people. He tries to convince people to do stuff. And within Exodus three and four, God's plans for Moses are subverted. God wanted Moses to go talk to Pharaoh, but he has to change his mind. He has to send Aaron instead as a spokesperson. And what's interesting in Exodus four, eight, as you've already talked about it, he says, in regards to the, the elders of Israel, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the later sign. If they will not believe even those these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. Water will become blood. You know, this he sets up this cascading contingency plan in case the elders don't listen to him. And here's the funny thing. Do the elders ever turn to Moses and say, oh, you're our leader, you're a great leader, and uh, we will do whatever you want to do? They oppose him from day one against Pharaoh. They never do turn to him. Right. And I'd like to uh, take one issue with what you said. If if determinism was true, why is God having dialogue with people? I I, I don't know a reason. It, what's the point of it? If deter, If God just determines everything... Why would he have back-and-forth conversations? It's a good point. All right. So in your first paragraph, let's take a look at this. You say that it's the future, by definition, is partly noble. It has not been settled. It's illogical to think that God knows the entirety of the future since there are things that are not there for him to know. Some aspects of the future are not even set until they're resolved by free agents. So some people claim that uh, open theists think that some of the future is set and some of the future isn't set, but there's almost an equivocation going on. Maybe you could uh, elaborate on that. Do you think that these set elements are something other than God's plans to make things happen, or do you think that these set elements are currently in existence? Can you repeat the question one more time? Maybe yes. simplify it a little bit. So, like, I know that I have a cat. The cat exists mm-hmm. right now. 
Um, if I know something in the future, like my wife will get home from her job at some sort of time, that, mm -hmm. that event does not exist for me to have the same type of knowledge about it because it's a not, not an actual event. It's a future event. I know what will happen, uh, but it's, it's not something that actually exists. It's not platonic knowledge, whereas the future already exists and my knowledge is based on an object that already exists. Does that make sense? Kind of, sort of. Very confusing. <laughs> but I think I'm following you. Right. So it's a different type wow. of knowledge. Well, that would be my argument, that the future is partly open and partly closed, but the partly closed doesn't represent actuality, like, like things that currently exist. It's closed in the right. sense that God has determined to make things happen. Is that your understanding? That is my understanding. Yeah. So sometimes open theists are criticized that we think that there's actual future events that already exist. And then we're mm -hmm. called, they call it a contradiction to think that there's only some things open and some things closed. Anyways, I was just clarifying that that was your position as well. Yeah. So let's move on to Miss Kristen Ryder's article. And uh, it's a long article, a thousand words. And uh, it says here that you requested her response. So you said you're pretty good friends with this lady? Yeah, no, I, I'm really good friends with Kristen. I've known her for about two years now. And um, I think very highly of her. I have a lot of respect for her. Yeah, she seems that she's well-read and she seems very articulate. And she seems to think above like uh, common concerns, common Christian concerns. She thinks at a higher level. Oh, yeah, definitely. She's intimidatingly smart. I Yes. So I wrote a response to her. Of course, your paper doesn't publish people who aren't students, so that's going to be published on God is Open. And I sent that to you. I had a couple concerns with some of her arguments. So mm -hmm. her first thing that she tries to do, she kind of compares open theism to some of these heretical groups, mm -hmm. and she compares it to Socinianism, mm -hmm. and that itself has nothing to do with open theism. Open theism seems to be just just like a tangential belief that they have. So I wasn't too impressed with that comparison as it seems like it's just kind of poisoning the well needlessly because open theists aren't Unitarians and they don't believe what these guys believe. I can attest firsthand that there's still fear within evangelical circles there is still a fear of open theism and it being heretical in the whole slippery slope fallacy. You know, if you compromise on this one area, you know, who's to say that you will not compromise on this area or this area? But yes, I am I'm encouraged that there is increasing acceptance. Yeah, I think it's interesting. She says it's an unbiblical theory, and that always gets to me because... Uh, when you look at, at canonical critics, uh, people like Christine Hayes of Yale University, who are third parties, they're not Christians, and they look at the Bible in particular, the Old Testament in particular, and the development of uh, Israelite religion, they don't believe that this was the God of Plato, that this is the God of Plotinus. Instead, they, they speak almost in terms of open theism, where it's it's God, but he's not outside of time, he's not pure actuality 
He's not pure simplicity. These third parties have more open theistic beliefs than uh, Calvinists. And if we're using them as a test case for someone who's neutral, looking at the Bible, that should be our default belief about what the Bible says. I'm following you. (laughs) So she says to worship the true God, which almost seems like a claim that open theists aren't worshiping the true God. We must return to scripture, our only source of truth about God. But you brought up certain scriptures. Um, You brought up the Exodus example with the cascading contingency plan for the elders of Israel, uh, Mm -hmm. which didn't turn out to work at all in, in the source text. And then she points to, let's see, she, she almost tries to lampoon your beliefs by comparing it to God having anthropomorphic limbs. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so the anthropomorphic argument is one that I'm very familiar with. And I was thinking about this a lot today. My return question would be, why assume that the text is anthropomorphic? Like, I can end where scripture is depicting God as a strong tower. You know, God isn't literally a strong tower. And so in that sense, I can understand how it's anthropomorphic. But we also have to look at what genre the text is. Mm -hmm. So poetic literature, it would be more understandable to view pictures of God as anthropomorphic in poetic literature. But when it comes to historical literature, why assume that it has to be interpreted in an anthropomorphic sense? Yeah, especially when you got uh, conversations, you got people talking to God. Is the entire conversation anthropomorphic? Did Moses actually ever talk to God? And if those turns of events, if those emotions in God if they are driving the narrative of the plot, how is that an anthropomorphism? How is that a metaphor if it drives the action of the plot? So I think it's interesting. Anthropomorphism, when I think of anthropomorphisms, I grew up in the 80s, and we had this show called The Brave Little Toaster, right? And this is this anthropomorphic uh, toaster that walks around, and he goes and tries to find his master. Like, I guess modern people might think of uh, Disney's Cars, anthropomorphic talking cars. Mm -hmm. Anthropomorphism is a a framing device for fiction. And it's like, is is the Bible, is that fiction? And a metaphor is not an anthropomorphism. A metaphor is where one thing represents another. Like, for Mm -hmm. example, one of the most famous metaphors is from Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo says, uh, what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. And we understand that metaphors they parallel things in real life. Like uh, the east, he's comparing Juliet in the window, like the sun rising from the east. Juliet, her radiant beauty is so great that it overrides everything else. And we kind of understand that metaphor in context. So if the Bible is speaking in metaphors, the question is, what does that metaphor mean? Mm -hmm. What does it mean when God repents of what he did remember god in genesis 6 6 is not repenting that man became evil he's repenting that he originally made man he's repenting of his own actions so what does repenting of his own actions mean it's a good point yeah so she points to jewish and christian traditions she says these passages have been interpreted as anthropomorphisms which she identifies as metaphors which that's good as if 
because anthropomorphism, that's, that's not a real thing. That's like a framing device for fiction. Metaphors are a real figure of speech, and that, that we could work with. And mm-hmm. then, then she turns to this line, which I think was interesting. The beauty of Scripture lies in the one who is wholly infinite and incomprehensible, descending to human form, which I don't understand how descending to human form makes him incomprehensible and wholly other and infinite, yet he could take on human form. That might be a contradiction in logic, both an anthropomorphic metaphor and in the person of Christ. Do you have any comments about that? I'm following you. She, she says that uh, we have to return to the Bible, and then she starts throwing out these holy, other, infinite, incomprehensible. Are those biblical attributes? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. We have to be cognizant of the presuppositions that we bring with us to the text, because when we bring presuppositions with us to the text, we are thinking that God has to be a certain way, and we read that into the text rather than plainly reading the text and seeing what the text has to say Mm -hmm. for itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. Like uh, when she references Romans one seventeen, I thought this was funny, so I'm just going to read it. She says, in fact, the scriptural witness asserts that God's work in redemption is significant because it is outside of human knowledge and endeavor. She quotes Romans 117. I always like to turn to these texts and read what they're quoting because mm-hmm. sometimes it's pretty funny. And Romans 117 reads this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Did that prove what she just said it proved? Why? why I... I, at first, I thought she misquoted. She typed in the wrong verse. Mm-hmm. I don't see how that says that God's work in redemption is significant because it's outside of human knowledge and endeavor. Do you see that in that verse? Yeah, perhaps I will bring that up to her the next time I run into her at a coffee shop. Yeah, so uh, it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So what that seems to me is that just having faith in God reveals God's righteousness. I don't, I don't see how that's this one of these obscure texts that we can't know anything about God and it's, it's wholly other. Another funny thing is that that entire sentence was, was a proof for her previous sentence, which says this, this definition of the future assumes that God's knowledge is identical to human knowledge, constrained by space and time, but such claim cannot be made. And then she follows, in fact, the scriptural witness asserts that God's work in redemption is significant because it's outside of human knowledge and endeavor. So this is a proof text to a previous sentence, and none of these things flow. Her proof text doesn't support her proof for her original claim. It's a whole sequence of non sequiturs. I don't know if you noticed. Have you written a, a detailed response to her? I have not, no. I So it's... I mean, we're at the end of the semester, and so if I wanted my response to be published like we've been going back and forth and doing, I would have to wait until the fall, and oh, by the time oh. the fall comes around, everyone will probably have forgotten oh, everything absolutely. that we've been talking about. The, yeah, that, that, that's it's sad how that works. Yeah, another, another thing in my experience when I'd write articles and people would get to respond to me with double the length of what I wrote, then the editor would say, you can't respond. This Everyone's been saturated with this issue. And you just have to let it go. It's like, great, no response. <laughs> okay, I'll just I'll just sit here hanging then, and everyone will think some other yep. person won. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, let's talk about how language works. And she says, God introduces his promise to Abraham with the words, no for certain. So what's her point here and how would you respond? Yeah, I think she is attempting to appeal to the deterministic motif that is found in scripture, which I believe that there is a deterministic motif found in scripture. You know, God determined that Jesus would die on the cross. God determined that there would be a church. Uh, he He's determined that he will come again someday. Mm-hmm. But there is also a motif of openness that is found throughout scripture as well, such as in Deuteronomy 28, or when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was crying out, possible, please take this cup from me. Even though, even though Jesus is God, he was still asking, if there is a possibility, let this cup pass from me. And, and that's one well, of the things that Calvinists <laughs> claim. They say, this one event, the crucifixion, that was for certain in history. And Jesus says, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Was Jesus a Calvinist? Mm-hmm. Did he think that this was a fixed event in human history? Or did he think there was other options? Possibly. 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 What what my response would be is that, yes, there is there's a deterministic aspect to God's foreknowledge. I mean, it's his divine prerogative to um, determine things as he wills. But I believe that in order to preserve free will, in order for, and in order for there to be a reciprocal love relationship, part of the future has to be dependent on free agents. There has to be reciprocity. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that the deterministic view of Scripture alone doesn't account for other biblical passages like I had mentioned. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's some leeway in how language works as well. Like, for example, God tells Eli and his sons that they're going to have uh, their their line, their house is going to be forever. And then he changes his mind. So even though he uses very deterministic language that your house will be before me forever, uh, it changes based on conditions. And when you turn to her proof text, she's quoting Genesis 15, 13. And I I love it when uh, Calvinists quote this verse, because this verse, the full text says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 400 years, that's interesting. When we turn to Exodus, it says that Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. And if we read the beginning of Exodus, their persecutions started... When Moses was born, that's when the new Pharaoh came, who didn't know Joseph, and he started killing the Israelite children, and he started enslaving the Israelites. And Moses was 80 years old when he got to Pharaoh, when he when he led the Exodus. And so there was or there wasn't 400 years of affliction, and Israel was in Egypt for 430 years, which suggests to me that there's some flexibility. Yeah, flexibility openness. I agree. <laughs> so even with these uh, no for certain, and then her own proof text, if you examine it, it contradicts her claims. Just just going to her own proof text. So that's funny. Her, her other proof text she use, uses is Amos 3.6. And this one's really funny. Uh, she writes, the beauty of the God of the scripture is not only that he knows what will happen, but that he has ordained all things good and evil and will bring about his purposes for the good of those he called. 
And our proof text is Amos 3.6. Amos 3.6 says this. I'm going to read through Amos 3.7 because in context it, it's clear what Amos 3.6 is about. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Because uh, in ancient cities you'd blow the trumpet when an enemy was approaching and everyone would understand there's an enemy coming. Yep. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? But then go on to the next verse. For the Lord God does nothing. The Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The God does nothing unless he reveals it to someone. So yep. she thinks God does everything. So does God reveal my, my little flick of the hand? Did he reveal that to some prophet somewhere? I don't think this verse in this context is about that. Instead, it seems to me to be about the same thing that Isaiah 40 through 48 is about, that God declares something, make sure it comes true, and you know that God declared it because he revealed it beforehand. Because it does no good if God does something and then afterwards tells everyone, that's what I did. Because even the people who believe in the false gods, they could do that. They just say, oh, you know, the right. World Trade Center, uh, that was my God. Thank you. But if Yahweh, if he reveals beforehand, then you don't have these this this credibility issue. Right. So that's what Amos 3, 6 seems to be about. And Amos 3, 7 kind of undermines what her claim is that God does absolutely everything. So Lamentations three thirty seven: who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it. Do you have any thoughts on that verse? Let's see. I just learned about this. I'm forming a thought here. I just learned about, um, so there's, and maybe you can help me with this. There's two kinds of, there is a direct cause and then there's maybe a dismal cause. If I'm using that word correctly, or maybe it's totally, maybe I'm using the totally wrong word. So in one sense, everything that is, is grounded in God. He holds all things together. But if a man goes out and kills somebody, that is not directly caused by God. But mm -hmm. because everything is grounded in God and God created everything, one could say that God is responsible because he created a world where something like this could happen. Right. And that um, might be illustrated in Job when he says the Lord brings good and brings evil. That could be what Job's referring to. Yeah, yeah, that would be my answer, that there's that there's different kinds of causes, and I wouldn't say that God directly causes or bad things to happen, but he did create a world in which there was the possibility, the necessary possibility, for evil to happen. Mm -hmm. So Lamentations 337, I'll tell you my thoughts. You could, you could critique me. It says, who has spoken and has come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? This is the same idea as Amos 3.6, whereas God tells his prophets beforehand what he's going to do. His prophets proclaim it, and then it comes true. And after the fact, you could check on the veracity of if God actually did this because he spoke about it beforehand. Who has spoken mm -hmm. it, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. And this isn't like an absolute rule. This is more of a rule of thumb. Because I speak all the time about things that are going to happen in the future, and then it comes to pass. Like I said, I'm going to interview you on my program, and then it happened. It's not like the Lord decreed it and came to pass, and I'm now a prophet of God. In Lamentations 3.37 is a general rule about prophets in general. These prophets declaring 
mass national tragedy, like uh, the Babylonian exile, something like that. Yeah, that, that's, that's one thing that I see a lot with uh, the Calvinists and those people that like the negative theology. They like to generalize verses. They don't want to try to contextualize verse, verses to see what they're, they might be saying to the listener, the stated listeners in the texts. And they want mm-hmm. to export it to their own world, the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> Your friend, she ends her article with this. One of the great attributes of God is he is in complete control of all things, including the future. In fact, the God of Israel mocked the pagan gods who cannot declare to us the things to come, Isaiah 41, 22. Again, I think that's the same thing as the Amos text. Just making claims after the fact doesn't do any good. And Isaiah is about predicting things before they happen. And in Isaiah, God says, guess what? I'm going to do something new now, something I haven't declared before. Because this isn't, these aren't declarations from the beginning of time. These are declarations when God starts to do things. He's like, I'm going to do a new thing. A new thing. Are there new things in Calvinism? I don't think so. So she says, the God who is worth trusting is a God who not only passively knows the future, but actively commands all that has and will occur. So tell us your thoughts about that. So I used to be a Calvinist a couple years ago, and I think it's this idea that I've had the most trouble with with Calvinism. How do we how do we reconcile, you know, a God that ordains people to go to hell, but yet he still desires for all all people to be saved? Yeah, I would say that for one, a God that ordains everything to happen, that wills everything to happen. I don't know how that God can hold people morally responsible for their choices then if they couldn't have chosen otherwise, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does Um, make sense. Uh, Throughout the Bible, culpability is often tied to how much you know. Like, for example, Nineveh, God says, we need to have pity on these guys. They don't know their left from their right hand. They're ignorant, so they have a lower standard of justice, just just based on our normal understanding of culpability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say, and you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, um, I would say that, yeah, a God that is immutable and unchanging and static is influenced more by philosophy, platonic philosophy, and the reason why I switched from being a Calvin, Calvinist to an open theist is because as I was reading these texts and I was listening to guys like Greg Boyd or John Sanders and I was examining you know, the evidence for myself, I started to realize that, wow, this is actually more faithful to Scripture than the Calvinist perspective. Yeah, that's what I would have to say. Yeah. And you, you kind of touched on this before. How does God actively commanding the future give us any assurity at all? Um, like Stonewall Jackson, I was reading... I was reading a Calvinist text about divine providence, and he said, Stonewall Jackson, he, was, he stood up during gunfire because he said, God controls all things, and whenever my time comes, my time comes. His own men shoot him, and then he dies of pneumonia eight days later. That, to, <laughs> it, that, that makes you trust God more than, than just random happenstance? I don't see why, because there's nothing in the world that we see that would make us more stable, right? There's a lot of bad things that happen to good people, like you're from Minnesota. That entire family of missionaries from John Piper's church were going to Colorado to get training. 
An entire family was killed by a trucker. And, I remember that. And this is supposed to be give us more trust in God than random happenstance? I don't see how. Wouldn't that be less trust? Yeah, no, and like I said, yeah, my and this is my my biggest issue with the deterministic viewpoint of the future is that it places God directly as directly responsible for evil. And I really don't know how you can get around that. And I see the big contradiction between a God that determines people to go to hell and determines all of these bad things to happen and a loving God. I see a contradiction there. And yet if, if you hold to a deterministic viewpoint, then not only do you have to believe that God ordains and wills these bad things to happen, but you also have to, in a sense, praise him and give him glory because he meticulously controls everything, including the bad things. Yep, absolutely. So I think that uh, is about it for our time. Uh, thank you for coming. Would you like to tell the audience about your website, uh, the link to your website and uh, what that's about? Oh, I, my blog, yeah, do you mean? blog. Yes, I have a blog. It is Tyler Wayne Hanna. No H at the end. That's one of my biggest pet peeves. <laughs> TylerWayneHanna.wordpress.com. Uh, yeah, I blog about things like business. Obviously, I love business, theology, and anything else. It's my interests. So I normally begin blogging more in the summertime just because I have more timeable. Uh, but yeah, go and check it out. Yep, it's a very professional site. I recommend it. A lot of good articles there. Well, thank you for being my guest today, Tyler. Uh, if anyone has any questions on this podcast or any questions on open theism in general, send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. 